From the University of Tulsa, this is Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast that explores how literature, philosophy, and theology can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am Jennifer Frey, Dean of the Honors College at TU and your host. I invite you to join me and my guests, which range from award-winning fiction writers, poets, and literary critics, to philosophers and scholars from a range of disciplines, as we explore in conversation how the enjoyment of art might be, as the late philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch has so provocatively suggested, a training in the love of virtue. I hope these conversations will enrich your life, inspire you to crack open some good books, and bring your attention back to what ultimately matters in the end. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am very pleased to be recording from the famous church studio here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with my colleague, Boris Dreluk. Boris is a poet, translator, and critic. He holds a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures from UCLA, where he has also taught and also at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He currently teaches in the English department here at the University of Tulsa. His work has appeared in many prominent venues, including the New York Review of Books, the New Yorker, and the London Review of Books. Most recently, he is the author of My Hollywood and Other Poems. He is a prolific and award-winning translator, and most importantly, you can find him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Boris Dreluk. Welcome to the podcast, Boris. Thank you very much for having me. It is a great accomplishment to be on X, isn't it? <laughs> Perhaps. But that's actually how I know you. That's true. So that's true. I somehow knew you there before I knew you as a colleague, which is also very exciting. So we're here this impressively dismal winter afternoon to discuss Nabokov's fourth novel in English, third or fourth? Yes, fourth novel. Called Panin. And this is actually the second episode that I've done on Nabokov. So episode 19 with the critic Becca Rothfeld was on Lolita, one of my absolute all-time favorite novels. Yeah. It's incredible. I was recalling to Rebecca how when I read that novel when I was 18, it just completely opened my eyes to what language could do. Mm. I had never really noticed things about my own language, which is sort of depressing because it was Nabokov's third language. Well, if you believe him, it was his first. Was it really his first? How's <laughs> Not that? quite, but in his autobiography in Speak Memory, he says that his English was better than his Russian when he was a wee boy, much to his father's chagrin. Did he have an English nanny? He did, he did. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't know that when I was 18. And I was amazed, but also devastated because I was like, yeah. how can someone write this well? And I'll never write this well. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and he would have you recognize that too. <laughs> anyway, just one of my all-time favorite books. And I had never read Panin until you said that you wanted to podcast about it. But I loved it, which is not surprising because I love Nabokov. But why Panin? Why did you choose this novel of all the novels he's written? Well, I'm newly back to academia after some time away, and so campus novels take up prominent resonance on my nightstand. And Panin 
first and foremost as a very early example of a campus novel. But of course, no campus novel is just a campus novel. Mm -hmm. It's also a novel about art, about immigration, about goodness and morality, and its obverse, and about people who have no natural habitat on this earth. And I am very sympathetic towards them. Nabokov is not known as a great sympathizer, but he was capable of great empathy. And I think that of all of his characters, he probably loved Pnin the most. Pnin is very lovable, even though he's certainly not outstanding. No, no. I mean, he's outstanding in some ways. He stands out. (laughs) (laughs) But not like Achilles. (laughs) No, no, no. He does have kind of a heroic vein, In the sense that he goes out solo and like some of the great heroes of the past, we see him riding off into the sunset at the very Mm -hmm. end of the book, forging his own destiny, which is the last thing that you'd expect this little fellow to do. But he's brave enough to do it. He's not going to be anyone's slave. He's not going to be anyone's underling. Mm -hmm. He'll take his fate in his own hands. Mm -hmm. Well, for the sake of our listeners... Let's introduce the character of Panin. Sure. He's kind of a middle-aged assistant professor. Barely. Yeah, you know, right. He's hanging on by a thread. <laughs> right. Yeah. Who is the kind of absent-minded, bumbling fool a little bit. How would you describe him? Well, I don't think he's... Yes, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he's a bit of a fool. You see how defensive I get when I talk about the guy? <laughs> I mean, He's foolish Uh, in so many ways. Yes, he's comical. He slips. He's a bit misshapen. His upper body is too large. He's perfectly bald. He Does perfectly bald mean he has no hair? No hair at all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we all imagine him slightly differently. But if you look at the early cover, for instance, of the book, he's just kind of a billiard ball with glasses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think he does become the butt of jokes on campus. He's a favorite joke for his colleagues Mm -hmm. who all look down on him. But he doesn't make that impression, at least I don't feel, on younger people. I think that there are very few depictions of him in the classroom, but I cherish those moments in the classroom where he abuses the hour that he has mm-hmm. to teach elementary Russian mm-hmm. and instead gives these students a picture of Russian culture mm-hmm. and meditates on mortality through a poem of Pushkin's. And I can imagine myself, and I think we can all imagine ourselves in that classroom because we've all had teachers like this. Oh, I absolutely have. My Latin teacher was like this. She was a Ukrainian emigre. Yeah. And I mean, I loved her. I learned hardly any Latin from her, which is fine. But she would just regale us with stories of the communist regime and just like how horrible it was. And she would tell us, you don't understand how lucky. I mean, just... Yes. Yes. Well, so I've actually, it was a moral yeah. education that you received. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And it didn't dissuade you from learning Latin. It no? certainly didn't help, but it didn't. <laughs> it was neutral. <laughs> it in was the neutral Latin. in the Latin department. She did not hurt my Latin. <laughs> she didn't hurt your Latin. No, but we take a kind of, I would say, ineffable inspiration from these people. These yeah. people who open up windows we didn't even know existed in these classrooms. And usually they are not playing by the rules of the other professors. They don't even know the rules. They Mm -hmm. wouldn't know where to find the rules. Mm -hmm. But they make a huge impression on young minds. Mm. They symbolize a kind of engagement with culture that is more inspiring than anything that you'd find in a textbook or in Mm -hmm. a well-ordered lecture. Mm -hmm. And Pnin does that. So yes, he's a fool, but... He inspires his stepson of sorts 
to send him this gorgeous bowl in the middle of the book. He doesn't even know how much of a role he plays in this young person's life. He thinks he's a failure、mm-hmm. in this young person's eyes, but that's not the case at all. Yeah, he's an interesting figure, and of course, the novel opens up, and Panin is on a train、mm-hmm. on his way to Cremona or something Cremona, like that.、So、basically,、yeah. like to give a lecture—not the Cremona violins, but、oh, right. the Cremona of the Northeast. Basically, to give his lectures to like the equivalent of a Rotary Club or something, some kind of ladies' social gathering. Precisely. And what he doesn't realize, but that the narrator tells us. Is that he's on the wrong train, right? Which seems like a bigger metaphor for Panin, right? Right,、yeah. that he's kind of lost in、yeah. general, not really sure where he's going in life, not really paying attention, right? Yeah, he's there for the ride, right? <laughs> But that I think is tied to his being. A kind of out of touch、mm-hmm. intellectual, but then also possibly because he's an immigrant. It's well, yes. not. I think there was one line at some point in the beginning of the novel where he says it was either he or the narrator. I can't remember. I'm sure that's important detail, but <laughs> one of them says, "Well, it's not me that's absent-minded; it's the world,、uh-huh. right?" Yes, yes,、yeah. <laughs> like somehow I'm a good guy stuck in the wrong. That's right. Place the wrong, you know, and it's his job to restore order in some way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what you said about the narrator and him getting mixed up in this particular way is actually really revealing because the narrator of this book is, for all intents and purposes, a figure that is very much like Nabokov, a successful version of Pnin, who、mm-hmm. is more confident. Better with the ladies, who gets the good job,、mm-hmm. who extends a helping hand to Pnin, and Pnin shoes him away, and whose own attitude towards Pnin changes throughout. But Nabokov is infusing both Pnin and this narrator with elements of his own experience as an emigre. He sees himself in Pnin as much as he sees himself in the very obvious alter ego of the narrator. Yeah, so we don't actually learn who the narrator is until the final chapter of the novel, and it's a little bit like, oh, because、mm-hmm. you're reading it, and it's like an intuitive inference that you make that the narrator is just Nabokov, like he's、mm-hmm. the guy writing the novel, right? Yeah, because、yeah. it's a very, I mean, it's just the most obvious. I don't even think you stop to make that inference; it is just there as you're reading it. But then at the end. You're like, oh, but it's this person, and、mm-hmm. then you're like, wait, <laughs> wait, I'm so confused that the narrator is now like a character, yeah, in this story. Why set it up that way? Well, I think there are many answers to this. One very obvious one is that Nabokov loved games.、Mm-hmm. He was a person who relished the opportunity to befuddle and confuse and set up a puzzle for the reader.、Mm-hmm. The cynical interpretation of that is he set up these puzzles so that scholars would keep talking about him forever and、mm-hmm. ever and ever,、mm-hmm. trying to puzzle them、mm-hmm. out, and that's a form of immortality, which gets us to the place that art held for Nabokov. You have to think about his life, which is similar to the contours of the life of Pnin, a person who was born into relative privilege in Nabokov's case, great privilege, who experienced, by all accounts, a lovely childhood. But whose childhood was cut short by the coming of the revolution、mm-hmm. and the civil war,、mm-hmm. who was 
thrust out of his country with his family, whose father was killed when he was still a very young man, and who, after having lost one homeland, had to lose several others because of the rise of Hitler. He had married Nabokov, a Jewish woman, mm. and they had to flee Europe, where they had managed to build a life and escape by the skin of their teeth. Mm -hmm. His brother ended up in a concentration camp, dying in 1945. So Nabokov's life was out of his control, like the lives of so many emigres of that period. He was a great vituperative critic of Marxism, and he was also a great vituperative critic of Freud. And what do Marx and Freud have in common? Well, Marx has a system of history, and that system of history is set in stone in some ways, and it also robbed Nabokov of his homeland. Freud has a system of psychology, which basically reduces the mind to a machine. Mm -hmm. And Nabokov found that to be a great invasion of his last remaining right, which mm -hmm. is the right to be an individual, mm -hmm. the right to be in control of his own mind. Mm -hmm. And art for him was the realm of ultimate freedom. This is where he was the master. This is where he had the control that was taken away from him by forces larger than himself in real life. Mm -hmm. So the insertion of himself into this novel is a kind of reminder or a kind of an emblem of the control that he has over his characters. The narrator of this novel, who's very much like him, has control to some degree over the fate of Pnin. He not only does in the book of himself write Pnin, create Pnin, mm. but also inserts himself to actually manipulate mm -hmm. Pnin's life mm -hmm. <laughs> inside the book. But miraculously, Pnin escapes. Virtually none of Nabokov's characters escape him. They all get their, their punishment in the end. And Pnin, because he's such a good person, gets to ride off. And mm -hmm. Nabokov is chasing after him, hoping to stop the car, but the mm -hmm. car just rides off. Mm -hmm. So it's a really hopeful conclusion for one of Nabokov's creations. I mean, do we think, though, that... Panin in the end. I mean, I should just say for the sake of listeners who haven't read this novel, one, you should read it. It reads very quickly. You can read it oh, it's, in it's a, a day. Oh, it's a breeze. And it's delightful because it's Nabokov, but it's also funnier. Much it's not funnier. like, I mean, Lolita's an incredible book, but it also is dark. It's dark. Um, it's cruel. Yeah, it's, it's tragic, yes, in fact. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. there are times in Lolita that we just have to walk away and. Panin's not like that. No. It's delightful. It's funny. It's sad, but it's not devastating. And, but I do wonder about our hero, Panin, <laughs> and exactly how we are to understand him. Because, like I said, there's not much going on in the way of plot in mm -hmm. this novel. He's a professor at a college. Somewhere in the Northeast, maybe, I guess it's New York. Yeah, it's probably a blend of Wellesley and Cornell, two places where Nabokov taught. And Panin is just biding his time, by and large. And there are people who enter into his life, like his ex-wife shows up mm -hmm. and I think she wants money or something. And he gives it to her. He gives her yes. everything. Yeah. And his ex-wife, kind of a failed poet. Yes, Monke. <laughs> a not very sympathetic figure. And... She had left Panin for, I think, a colleague in yes, psychology. That's right. And they had a son, Victor, who didn't know 
that his father was Panin until he's a teen. Mm-hmm. He finds out, I think, chapter four or something. And so there's a kind of father-son reunion. There's a faculty party because, obviously, if it's a campus novel yes. about professors, there has to be a faculty party where people drink too much. And then Panin is informed by one of his colleagues in German. I can't remember his name. What was his name? His protector. I forget the fellow's name. Yeah. He's got a protector at this university. He's looking out for him because Panin is basically useless in terms of, from the perspective of administration, he would be considered useless. That's for certain. And anyway, his protector has gotten a better job. Mm-hmm. And is leaving, which means that Panin is not going to be gainfully employed anymore at Waynedale College. That's right. And he just informs him after this great party, this fantastic party. That's kind of it plot-wise. And then we have Chapter 7, which is so strange because this extra character of the narrators really enters the novel in a surprising way. And we realized that they had met in the past and the narrator was having an affair with his ex-wife. While, anyway, it gets complicated. But for most of the novel, Panin seems sad at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. right? Many chapters end with some kind of vision or dream, He talks about not believing in God, but a democracy of ghosts. Yes. He seems really stuck in the past. Yes, because the past is both a happy and a tragic one for him. And it's cut off in a way that, well, it's cut off for all of us, of course, but with an exclamation mark for most exiles. Mm -hmm. And there again, there are parallels with Nabokov's life. Nabokov, in a number of his, his English language works, writes about... Directly and indirectly, the Hitler war, as it's called here, Mm -hmm. and its consequences. And one of the strongest members of this democracy of ghosts in this book is the ghost of an old girlfriend of Pnin's, whose name in Russian, her surname is Belichkin, which means or is related to the word for squirrel, Belichka. And squirrels are all over this book. They are. And Pneen is often described as a squirrel. Yeah. And Pneen rescues one squirrel from thirst. Mm -hmm. Another squirrel is found eating a peach stone, which solves a riddle that he remembers from childhood in one of his visions, which is a squirrel holding an object on a painted screen. And he doesn't know what that object is. Mm -hmm. Turns out that here is a real living squirrel solving the puzzle for mm-hmm. you. It's a peach stone. Mm-hmm. So the, There's also the postcard. There's also the postcard that he sends to Victor of a gray squirrel. Yeah. yeah, of yeah. a gray squirrel. So the presence of the squirrel is a guardian angel in the book. It comes at important moments, the squirrel, and makes something slightly less dreadful happen where dreadful things are about to happen. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily save him outright, but Mm -hmm. it redirects him just enough to keep him from slipping on the ice or get him out of danger, out of harm's way, and give him some sense of resolution. Mm -hmm. So that is part of Nabokov's, I think, spiritual vision. I think that those are authentically things he would have liked to believe, that there was a democracy of ghosts. But it was certainly something he could create in his novels. Mm -hmm. He could create a benevolent subtext some world of positivity that lingers just outside of the text itself and makes itself apparent 
and not too apparent at key moments. Mm -hmm. And a number of his short stories and his novels feature this kind of pattern that only becomes evident occasionally. And it suggests that there is something else, that there's something out there looking out for us, even if we don't always see it. Mm. Sometimes it's a negative haunting, sometimes it's a frightening haunting, but something is determining the shape of this world that mm -hmm. we just don't see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when he finally gets to the Rotary Club to give his lecture, yes. he also has like some kind of mini stroke. Or yes, he has unfortunately. Yeah, There's yeah. a whole odyssey of getting there that is complicated. But he sees all of these dead relatives in That's the right. audience, including his parents. That's right. And he's constantly having visions of dead people from his previous life, yes. right, in Russia. And something that I couldn't quite piece together is what really is his relationship with his own memories. And does that factor into his transition from, at the outset of a novel, a guy who is not only going the wrong way, but in ignorance that he's going the wrong way. Like he quite literally does mm -hmm. not know where he's going. To someone who has taken charge mm -hmm. of his future, at least insofar as he's going somewhere, although we don't, <laughs> don't know, know where. Yes. And does he know where? I don't it's know. It's possible that he doesn't, but he's driving. Yes, but yeah. he's driving. And then there's also, I mean, not to try to take away from the image of the hero at the end, but the narrator does get the last laugh because it's sort of like a colleague comes by and talks about how when he got to the Rotary Club, he yes. realized he had the wrong lecture. So we go right <laughs> to the beginning of the book. Yeah. It turns us around. But remember, our narrator says that all of this mockery of Panin by this colleague leaves the intellectual equivalent of a bad taste in his mouth. Mm -hmm. And the obsession that these people have in mocking Panin mm -hmm. is their obsession. That's not Panin's Mm -hmm. worry. That's not mm -hmm. his concern. Mm -hmm. He's blissfully unaware of it. Mm -hmm. He's going off living his life, maybe not his best life, but mm -hmm. the best life he can find at the moment, while they are entertaining themselves in the most shallow way possible, mocking this person whom they don't really understand. Mm -hmm. They can physically embody his quirks, but they don't know what lies at the heart of him. Mm -hmm. But do we? Well, I think we do. I think that he really has shown... Everyone, nothing but sincerity and kindness in this book. Mm -hmm. He always sets a foot wrong, but he really does no wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's a good indication of the kind of person that he is. And it stands in contrast to just about everyone else whom we meet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that he is a rare example of a positive personality type mm -hmm. in, in the book of his work. Mm -hmm. Well, I wondered, though, I mean, because you and I are egg-heady, right? Yeah. So maybe it's not surprising that we have such a sympathetic eye for Panin. Mm -hmm. But could you imagine someone else who simply finds him insufferable? That is to say, if you were confronted with someone who... I'm just trying to play devil's advocate No, no, here, I understand. But yeah. if you think about Panin, he... And now I'm thinking about the passages where we kind of get a window into his intellectual life. Yes. And it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because his intellectual life 
mirrors, it's actually a lot like his actual life because he doesn't know where it's going. Yes. Like he gets fascinated by something. Yeah. And then He's there's like something else over here. Yeah. Yeah. And a whole day in the library will end in nothing. Yes. Right? Yes. And I really loved those passages because in a way I resonate with that very deeply. Yes. I mean, sometimes you just want to spend the day lost in thought and that was a great day. Yes. And you don't have anything to show for it. But I think a lot of people not only don't get that, but are very put off by it as like, oh, you're a useless person. You're and, not and here, contributing. Who are you, Ron DeSantis? <laughs> I mean, but that's actually something that's worth talking about. I mean, yeah. the campus is not a perfect campus, but for a while it acts as a kind of monastic safe space mm -hmm. for a person like Panin. And what I was saying earlier about the effect that Panin has on students, he may not produce any useful knowledge at the end of the day, mm -hmm. but he serves as a kind of humble but important model of pure intellectual life for these young people. Mm -hmm. And they need that, and you can't quantify exactly why they need that, but their lives, I feel, will be richer mm -hmm. for having seen this man in, mm -hmm. in action. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and the university and a college campus, a liberal arts college campus, is this is why it's so very difficult to defend it to people who look at Panin and find him insufferable. It is a place for Panins, among others. Mm -hmm. It's also a place for the chair of French who doesn't speak French, this other administrator. Yeah. There are also yeah, yeah, careerists. Yeah. There yes, are people yes. who derive pleasure from cruelty, like this young cockerel mm -hmm. professor who mocks him constantly. But it's also a place for those misfits who, for reasons that I can't even necessarily explain right now, mm -hmm. need to exist and inspire not only other misfits, but inspire people who go on to do productive things, but with a bigger heart and a bigger sense of empathy for those who don't. Yeah, well, it's interesting because he's fired in the end, yeah. right? He's let go. Because he's useless and it's discovered, right? Yeah. And he's replaced and we see him driving off and we don't know where he's going. And one wonders if he is leaving the university in a bigger sense, right? And I mean, back to your point about the university being a place for Paninians. I mean, I think it's not anymore mm -hmm. is the thing because the university has by and large been turned into a kind of business where you do have to be productive and you will be held accountable to that every year in your annual report. And we want to know what you're producing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not enough to just say, well, I inspired students. That's not enough anymore. And it does take away from the monastic character of the university, for sure. Most people, I think, would say that that's good. I'm not among those people, but I mean, but I guess my question is, is Nabokov trying to say something about the university, about the professor, or as you suggested earlier, is it all somehow an elaborate metaphor for art? Because Panin isn't an artist. His son is. Yes. 
Yes, that's a very good question. I do think that the college represents a kind of system that is very far from perfect, that is corruptible and corrupted. But it's the best of all possible worlds for a character like Pnin. You know, yeah. it's a terrible system, but it's the best one we've got. Mm-hmm. Compared to the alternative, which is the realm of, let's say, the Soviet Union, where a much, much harsher fate awaits someone like Pnin than mm-hmm. it would in the imperfect world of American college life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Nabokov is a great critic of aspects of American culture, but I think he very much thought of himself as an American and was pretty loyal to the ridiculousness of this land. And the freedom that comes with all of its messes, the mess that comes with freedoms, he admired it. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think that there is a kind of respect for the college campus, despite all of the mockery that it receives here. And I do also think that you're right, that it is a metaphor for art. But I think Panin is a kind of artist, because like artists, he does spend the whole day chasing a bright laser dot. And it may not produce, at the end of the day, the work of art. It may not contribute in an easily recognizable way to his masterpiece. But by gum, three or four days later, three or four weeks later, maybe years later, that little scrap that he found may actually end up in some half-decent poem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if unless given the freedom to chase those fancies, unless given some safe space, as it were, the poem will never happen. The work of art will never happen. The work of scholarship will never happen. Those fallow periods or those seemingly fallow periods are required. They're part of the process. Mm -hmm. And Panin represents maybe a little overabundance of that aimless pursuit But part of the pursuit of knowledge is aimless. It has to be aimless. Otherwise, you don't gather all the bits that you can. I mean, yes and no, right? So I would say the life of study, where let's take study in its maximally capacious sense, where, you know, I could really study that rug Mm -hmm. and maybe write a poem about it. It has to be aimed at at least truth or, Mm. right? I mean, it has to have some meaning or purpose for the person pursuing it. It has to have some seriousness. Yes. So I think the aimlessness is maybe just that there's not a definite product. Yes, that's what I mean. Exactly, exactly. Right? I completely agree. I think that there has to be some kind of intuitive compass, Mm. which is a compass in the pursuit of Something that one takes seriously, something Mm -hmm. that one takes very, very seriously. Truth is a good word for it. The book of hated the term moment of truth because, of course, what is that one moment of truth? (laughs) Yeah, But a greater truth, that is a worthy thing to pursue. So, yes, the pursuit is a serious one, but that doesn't mean that the aim is something that we can summarize in a thesis statement. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Nabokov's conception of art because Mm -hmm. I don't have a line on this. Maybe you do. I think just an observation that I can make about Nabokov as a writer is his phenomenal attention to detail. Mm. Like that was another thing that reading Nabokov in particular really made me aware of, which is the fact that the writer – is someone who really has to pay attention. Yes. And now I became a philosopher, Mm -hmm. right? But when I was 18, I wanted to be a writer. 
And at some point I came to self-knowledge and realized like, I'm actually not super great. Like I'm not a detailed person. Mm. I'm like a big picture, Mm -hmm. abstract thinker kind of person. And at any rate, for a variety of reasons, gave up my ambitions as a fiction writer, for sure. Because I didn't think that I had those contemplative abilities that Nabokov clearly possesses to an extraordinary extent. He sees things in everyday life and situations that I never see. Yes. He notices things about humans that I think I never notice. And it's like I'm grateful to him for bringing those wonderful, particular details to life and a character and a story. And I'm just wondering what that kind of vision, that kind of attention to extraordinary detail and the attention to language in that. Mm -hmm. Because the way he describes it is what's so memorable, right? right? Like, it's not memorable, like, the bone structure of his face, but the way (laughs) that he describes it will, like, stick with you. Yes. What does that kind of contemplative paying attention to the ordinary in everyday life have to do with his conception of art because it's there in all of his novels? It's a very good question. I do think that noticing and observation are absolutely key. I think for him to be alive, to be truly alive is to observe, is to notice. To notice things that would escape your notice if you were half dead, Mm -hmm. which probably most people are for most of the day. Well, that's Simone Weil's whole line. Right. Right. Yeah. So those details can save your life in very literal fashion. There's a great scene at the end of Speak Memory where suddenly he discerns in the distance the ship that will save his family from destruction. Mm -hmm. And that moment of discernment, that moment of observation is really a life-saving moment. What his work does by being so intricate, by involving so many puzzles, involving such an obvious abundance of attention on his part to every detail, is it forces you to pay attention to his text the way that he wants you to pay attention to life. Mm-hmm. It forces you to be almost paranoid in your search for details in his work. He throws out so many clues everywhere there is a clue. Pay attention. Look at this. Look at this thing that I'm capable of doing. Did you notice the squirrel? Yeah. It just flitted by, but did you notice? Did you know that squirrel means shadow tail? Did you know that my character is being shadowed, that he has a tail? Mm-hmm. Did you notice the shadow behind his heart and the x-ray? All of these things. I don't think I noticed that. Ah. that thing. Yeah. <laughs> so all of these things are there to make you a kind of paranoid reader. But for Nabokov, that isn't a crime. To be a close reader of a text is also to be a close reader of the world. It means not to let things slip past. It means to take full advantage of your life. So I think his concept of art is, at least in one sense of it, is a process of awakening, a tool for awakening. You as a person stimulating you in ways you didn't know that you could be stimulated. Well, so that's fascinating because it's very much in line to a certain extent. It depends on what direction you go with it. So Simon Weil says that the great artist is someone who presents us with reality. And she says that we can't grasp it 
because we are so busy and distracted and of necessity, we console ourselves with lies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she says this in literature and morals. So she thinks great literary artists of genius are people who can actually show us what's real mm. in the world, about ourselves, etc. And then she thinks there's a moral dimension to this. She thinks that this kind of attention and contemplation has a moral effect, right? Nabokov wrote Lolita, and that's not a moralizing novel, I don't think. I mean, certainly we're not meant to like Humbert Humbert. He has his appeal. (laughs) He's a great user of the language, as you say. Well, it's easy to get seduced by Lolita just as a work of art. It's easy to be seduced by the language and to forget what you're reading about in a sense. And I think that is part of the lesson is, can you remember what you're reading about? Can you see through the scrim? Can you see through the filigree Mm -hmm. and remember what you're reading about? Remember what the moral core of this story is and the tragedy of Lolita. Right. Yeah. So if Nabokov as an artist wants to awaken us, to what? What are we to awaken to? The good? That's a good question. The true, the beautiful. I mean, does it somehow have a didactic or transformative, right? Or is it just better to be awake? I think it's just better to be awake. But I do think the true and the beautiful are important categories here. I think there is a kind of romantic vision of goodness, truth, and beauty there. But I also think that good to be awake means that you can realize yourself as an individual and not be led or misled into darkness. Mm -hmm. Darkness being political darkness, being simply a kind of deadening of the senses. You can remain alert, awake, and make decisions for yourself and take control of what little you can control. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, the work of this novel is to make us aware. On the other hand, it's also a demonstration of the amount of control that Nabokov has over his art, the degree to which he is a great creator, the degree to which here he can exercise his freedom. He famously said in his Paris Review interview that some authors talk about their characters running away with them or them being surprised by what their characters end up doing after they create them. Mm-hmm. And the book have said, my characters are galley slaves. They do exactly what I tell them. Mm-hmm. Because this was the realm in which he had control. Mm-hmm. He was hyper alert, hyper aware, and very much in control of the situations that he painted in these works. Mm -hmm. And when you pick up this work, it should serve as a model for how to be a person in control. Well, so, I mean, just to close out the conversation, this novel was written around the same time that he was writing Lolita. Yes. I find that so strange to wrap my mind around it because (laughs) on the surface level, these are such different novels. And that surface level is that Pnin and Humbert Humbert are such different characters, right? I mean, Humbert Humbert is repulsive and Pnin is goofy but lovable and relatable to me. (laughs) Yes. It's relatable. 
And and the themes are Lolita's uh, novel about the continuous rape of a young girl um, and pedophilic lusts and impulses. It's also an extraordinarily beautiful novel. Yes. That carries with it a kind of weight. I mean, the last time I read Lolita, my eldest daughter was 12. She was the same age. My gosh. And... It hit different that time. Of course. Right? I can't help but. This is just fun to read. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it's just fun. Yeah. Well, there, So it's yeah. so fascinating to me to think about these two novels together because, on the other hand, there are many ways in which they're the same. They both involve Europeans struggling to figure out America. Well, there you go. Yeah. And people who can't quite make their home here even though they need to and people who are maybe in various ways self-defeating but anyway I just wonder it's hard for me I'm not an Abokov scholar by any stretch of the imagination it's hard for me to tease out of that a single conception of art Mm. can you a single conception of art. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I think there is a big moral difference between Humbert Humbert and Pnin and their relationship with young people. Their relationships with young people are at the center of this difference or they're quite representative of this difference. Humbert Humbert projects his fantasies onto others and manipulates them, attempts to manipulate them. Of course, he pays a heavy price for his hubris, his belief that he can completely mm-hmm. control Lolita. Pnin respects, in an almost ridiculous fashion, the intellectual individuality and the maturity of this young man, Victor, mm-hmm. his son. And he treats him with such respect that he thinks that he himself in his eyes is just a ridiculous old man. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a little bit of a tell that in life, we really ought to treat others with respect and respect their individuality and not to force our wills on others. In art, we have the liberty of creating whatever world we want. In art, we are the masters. But in life, we are not. People are not playthings. They're not toys. Each person is potentially a great creator of a world of her own. Mm -hmm. And I think that the key is respecting that. Mm -hmm. So that would be the moral takeaway. But in terms of art, both works are worlds onto themselves. And they kind of interlock in some ways. There are so many similarities and overlaps in the biographies of Humbert Humbert and Nabokov himself and Pnin. Yes, yes. They're all concerned with the fate of men who have seen great changes in their lives Mm -hmm. over which they had no control, have experienced losses, Mm -hmm. the losses of love early in their lives, and who find different ways of coping with those losses. Either they are oblivious to them, or they are broken by them, or they, in an immoral way, try to recoup for them and pay the price. Mm -hmm. You make Nabokov sound like a very good liberal. Liberal? (laughs) Yes, where freedom is about personal individual autonomy, right? I think that's very much what he believed. (laughs) Yeah, so I just want to clarify one point. Is the artist, the individual artist, the highest expression for him of that particular notion of freedom? And does the artist have duties and boundaries 
in expressing that freedom? That's a very good question, and I'm sure many people have racked their brains trying to answer it. I would say that, yes, the artist does represent a kind of ultimate freedom. I'm not entirely sure how he would limit what kind of boundary he would set around the realm of art, whether having a complicated and beautiful inner life was not in itself a kind of art. But yes, the artist, the person who creates, the person who writes, the person who paints, is ideally, if they take their job seriously, if they take their vocation seriously, embracing freedom to the utmost degree. They must be free. But yeah, I think that he was just in the most fundamental sense against censorship of any kind. And I think that he probably believed that if a work of art was bad, if an artist was bad, one should say so. One should say so loudly. He never held back his strong opinions mm -hmm. about artists who he thought were failures. Mm -hmm. But that was the price that those artists should pay. They should be called terrible. They should not be stopped from working. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because the one respect in which Lolita and Panin are so much alike is that it is a story about a European immigrant trying to figure out this country where there isn't this history mm -hmm. and tradition and sense of place, right, mm -hmm. in the way that anywhere in Europe has those things. But of course, this kind of liberalism is what really takes root yes. in the new world. And this kind of new world, old world tension mm -hmm. is so prominent in both of those novels. And it almost seems like, I mean, on the one hand, Nabokov clearly finds America a bit crude. Very much so, right? sure, yeah. Crude Campy. but free. Yeah, crude but free. I think right. that's right. Is yeah. our crudeness just the price we pay for our liberalism and I our mean, freedom? It's hard to imagine him not delighting in some of that crudeness. I mean, <laughs> even if it was in a cruel fashion, he loved American pop culture. It's all over his books. And yeah, he was fascinated by it. And I think he lapped it up, frankly, ecstatically even. You don't think he was a tiny bit repulsed? I think he was repulsed by certain elements of American culture. For instance, I think he was disgusted by racism. But I don't think that he was repulsed by all of those motel signs. <laughs> I think he thought them just darling. And the novelty of the place was exciting. And he grew up reading his favorite reading material, much like the Panines, were stories by Jack London and completely forgotten authors of Westerns. So American culture was with him from the start. And I think if he didn't quite worship it, he certainly had a soft spot for it. Any final thoughts? Either about Nabokov or Panin. Final thoughts about Panin. I think that I really hope that wherever that place is, there is a place where he can exercise his futility <laughs> and enjoy himself. Yeah. Well, let's try to create that here in Tulsa for yeah. the useless people. Exactly. Thank you, Boris. This was delightful. Thank you. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love a podcast hosted by the Honors College at the University of Tulsa. To learn more about the Honors College, please go to our website, utulsa.edu slash honors. To learn more about this podcast, you can check out its website, sacredandprofanelove.com. On the website, you'll find an archive of all our past episodes and guests, and also a blog where we post news related to the work that we do. 
You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, where our handle is at eudaimoniapod. Finally, if you would like to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. Patrons receive podcast swag and subscriptions with our literary partners, The Point Magazine, Switchyard Magazine, and The Lamp Magazine. We are grateful to our partners for their ongoing support. 